Blog Talk Radio. Guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woo-hoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woo-hoo! <laughs> hump day. Hump day! <laughs> Welcome to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson with Coco Konski. And uh, we we got a whole list of things from the frivolous to the serious and everything in between. I'm Tom Donaldson. I am the chairman of America's PAC and the research associate and project director for America's Majority Foundation, the author of eight great books, none of them yet bestsellers, but they all should be. And my co-host for tonight and every Wednesday, and until further notice, uh, is Coco Konski. Hi, everybody. How are you? Yes. Hello. And, uh, Hello. And what else can you talk about yourself other than? Uh, well, I'm a writer. Uh, I work from home. So I got that going for me. I've been working eight hours so far today. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's been fun. Yeah. Well, here's the latest, ladies and gentlemen, here's the deal you can, A, uh, contact us through calling in at 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130, or you can tweet at Donaldson Files or Coco on the left, at Coco on the left or at the Donaldson yes. Files on Twitter. And so, all right, you know, we were off the, you know, like I say, we got so many things to talk about, and we're going to actually – a little bit later, we're going to get into your adventures in the Santa Barbara, which I think, by the way, has got some really, you know, it's one of those things, but it does have some significance for policy in general for what's going on. So we're going to take a kind of, you know, what you observed, what you did, and then we're going to go from there and just let the conversation right. flow. But for right, but for right now, you know, you know, you and I were talking because you were, you said there's like the Johnny Carson, uh, Network. Oh, what was okay. it that you... Yeah. All right. So um, I don't know if any of you guys know what Pluto TV is, but Pluto TV, um, I discovered it when I first started dating my boyfriend, and he had this like channel on, like things, like every night, and I finally got intrigued by it, and it's really cool. It actually is really cool. It's like completely free. Um, it basically caters to what you like to watch. Like they have a like Tom, they have like a Miss Marple uh, channel. 
You know, mm. they have like yeah. British TV and it's basically a loop 24 seven of that program. So they have like everything. Like I was, they just added the Johnny Carson channel. So I have been watching Johnny Carson 24 seven and it, it, it's kind of hilarious because I've always loved Johnny Carson. Um, but there is, you know, when you watch the Carson show, and you see Ed McMahon and, you know, they're, they're guests and they have like these crazy products. They would have the most random guests that I don't think you would, you would have today. Like they had some random sheriff from some, some like small town talking about his car. And I, I'm literally sitting there watching like, oh my God, who wants to watch this? <laughs> like yeah. some of the guests are like, eh. But, you know, they have really great guests. Like, if you're into, like, kind of old Hollywood, you know, they have Jack Lemmon. They had a very, very young Tom Hanks, who I believe Tom was, like, in his 20s or 30s when he did this show. And people that mm. you, you never heard of and you still haven't heard of. Um, yesterday, yeah. it was really funny because when I was watching it, um, they had a segment of new high-tech toys of the 70s and I'm kind of like oh my god this is so ridiculous like none of these toys have ever made it uh one of them being a there was a plunger for the bathroom called the john plunger and so you would time yourself and when the timer went off like I guess an alarm went off it was so people don't overuse the bathroom it was like one of those gimmicks um but Mm. you know I was researching Carson and wasn't that he wasn't a very nice man. We'll just put we'll just put it that way. He wasn't a very his persona on TV was basically entirely different to who he was as a person. And what I found really interesting, Tom, uh, Ed McMahon, yeah. uh, Johnny Carson was worth around three hundred million dollars uh, at the time of his death. Can, can can you guess how much Ed McMahon was worth without googling? So hundred hundred million. Two million dollars. Wow. At the time of his death. And, and a lot of people like kind of like speculate like, well, he was Carson's sidekick for over 30 years, you know, um, and Carson's yeah. worth 300 mil. How did every man wor- be worth 2 million? Well, he went through a lot of divorces and basically he was married five times and each of his wives collected a really hefty sum. And by the end of like his life, he was only worth two million dollars. As a comparison to Johnny Carson, who's worth three hundred million, it's like it's kind of. I actually was kind of shocked by that. So um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, all, they have all these really cool channels. They have they actually have a forensic file channel. They have a reality TV channel. Um, they have over like three hundred channels, and so I, I I usually watch it right before going to bed. But I I have been hooked on the Johnny Carson show for a. Uh, a good two days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it was a classic. And it was. And interesting. Yeah. Well, interesting enough, because, you know, you and I thought, but like the first host was actually Steve Allen. Yeah, which I didn't know. Which, I thought I thought Steve Allen yeah. had his own show. I, I, I well, didn't know he was yeah. part of the, the late show. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he went from that, and then he went to the his own show. He did end up with his own show afterwards. And then they had right. like an interlude, and then uh, called Tonight After Dark, American After Dark. Uh, uh-huh. But then they then Jack Parr took over. 
Which I find, well, yeah. I mean, well, Jack Parr was in the 50s and, like, early 60s. I mean, Carson ran from 60, yeah. I think it was, like, 66 to, like, 93. What? I mean, you can imagine. Uh, uh, nine, yeah, 1962 when he's officially started. Okay, 1962. I wasn't too far off. With, and whatever, yeah. yeah I, I always forgot about Sketch, Sketch Henderson, the band leader. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it, yeah. I mean, he has good guests, and like some of the show. When I was watching some of the reruns, I'm like, "Oh my god, this is raunchy from back in the '70s." You know, yeah. um, I I I was watching an episode from like I don't know, like '74, 1974. Yeah. You know who they had? They had um, oh god, what is his name? Jaeger. He was a very famous uh, stunt pilot. Oh, Chuck Jaeger. Chuck Yeager, they had him on, and I, I saw him on the on the on the Tonight Show, and uh, I was like, "Wow, talk about old school." I mean, yeah. that was that was kind of a crazy. So if you're into like old guests that are like obviously dead now, yeah. Um, then yeah, this is a really fun show, and it's like kind of raunchy well, and it's fun, and it's you know, yeah. I think I, I enjoyed remember, it. Did you ever remember uh, the 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 episode with Ed Ames? It was I cannot remember. No. Yeah, it was okay. Well, Ed Ames would play had this character on another space, and I have to go look it up real quick here. But he had, you know, he was like a uh, on a television show, and he, oh, he was playing an Indian character on a, a TV show television series, Daniel Boone. Mm-hmm. And they had this, and he would, and they had this show where they literally. You know, I think you know they put out. You know, he was throwing axes, and and one of the axes basically, you know, they had this image of a human being, being and he's throwing his axe at the, you know, missing him, and he finally had this one where he basically, you know, right between the almost between right underneath the crotch, and of course, oh, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's no, but of... what's, fu- what's funny about the show, Tom, though, um, I don't know if you remember the Larry Sanders show. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. basically a take from Carson. It's exactly the, the Carson, the, you know, uh, Jeffrey Tambor plays like, um, oh, my God, what is his name? Gary Shandling's uh, co-host or whatever. Like, he's like uh, the Ed, Ed McMahon. McMahon. Ed McMahon. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's like the Ed McMahon of the, uh, of the series. And I, I just thought it was so funny because, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching this and I'm listening to it. And um, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's just, to me, it's just really funny. Yeah. Well, hold on. So, to that this is Tom Donson, Kukonsky here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can listen to our show 3 a.m., 10 a.m. on the bachelornews.airtime.pro every day, 3 a.m. to 10 a.m. or 12 Pacific and 7 Pacific time. And don't forget, tonight on Block Talk Radio, um, I will be the moderator of a discussion 
that features Dr. Larry and his guest. So, and so you know, just stay tuned because if you like Tom Donaldson, you're going to love tonight's two hours block of me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, actually, yeah. It, I mean, like I say, car, I mean, it's so funny to see some of these old Carsons and, you know. You know like, yeah, like, it's like kind of crazy. It's, yeah. yeah. It's kind of crazy. Absolutely. I will tell you, it's uh you know, yeah. I'll watch like I'll watch like the reruns or whatever. My favorite is when they have the animals on. I love when he has those animals on. Yeah. Yes. God, it's been <laughs> so long. Yeah. Well, go get Pluto, get, get get Pluto TV. You can watch them twenty four seven. All right. Okay. You had your great adventure in Santa Barbara. And uh, one of the kind, yeah, so, I guess. I guess it was well, an adventure. Yeah. I was only there for like eight hours. Well, kind of talk about your experiences, and then we'll kind of move into this. Well, okay, so my boyfriend and I, like, been wanting to go on a trip, and obviously we can't fly anywhere, um, can't really go anywhere away for the weekend. So we decided we're going to drive, like, I don't know, an hour to Santa Barbara, and I love Santa Barbara. Um, To me, Santa Barbara is, like, your coastal surfer vibe town. Um, It's a really fun town to be at. So we decided to take the dog and drive up there and the drive was pretty good i mean it took us like 45 minutes to get there um and so we decided we at first we were going to have a picnic but then we we're just like you know what like we have the dog we can't go in the grocery store with him and he doesn't know if he's going to pick something that i don't want to eat so we kind of decided that we were going to go and kind of like maybe check out a restaurant that obviously has outdoor seating and there were like no people around because we're so freaked out about that. And the first place we were going to go check out, check out was this like steak place. And I love me some steak and I love me some seafood, but I got to tell you, the line was so uncomfortably long and mind you, it was 118 degrees. (laughs) And I was like literally in a long sleeve shirt and I did not feel like even if we got in, people were too close to each other for my, my taste. So we decided to go across the, the shop, and there was this other place that was open. Like, nobody was there, really. Um, as we sat down, a couple left. So we were, like, literally 10 feet apart from people, which I liked. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, I'm not going to eat at a restaurant outside um, if someone is not at least six feet away from me. Like, I'm just not, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. So, um, the food was good. Uh, was it better than that steak place? Probably not. I wouldn't, I, I, I guess I'll never know. But um, for the most part, it was really chill. You know, obviously the servers wore their masks. I wore my mask the entire time, like, until I had to eat. And then I put it, like, right back on. Um, like I said, uh, you know, everything is covered. Like, even the drink men, their menus that they gave us were um, actually covered in, um, I guess, like, like saran wrap, I guess. I don't know if that's the, the, the correct term. But everything was basically covered. So, like, you know, every time someone left, they would change the covering. Yeah. On it, which I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I really, we just really wanted to just kind of, like, chill out and just, like, kind of be normal for a bit. But um, would I do this every week? No, there's no way in hell I would. I mean, I feel like 
once every now and then, I can do it. But I'm not going to go to a place where it's going to be complete chaos where, like I said, like you're sitting outside 118 degrees. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know if you guys ever been in 118 degrees, but it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant whatsoever. And, you know, so we decided to do that. We were going to go to the beach, but then we saw the ridiculousness of, you know, the crowds and, you know, it was, it was just too much. Like I, I, I wouldn't even have gone outside the car. I'll tell you that it was, it was so Mm. overcrowded and and just so unnecessarily. So like, and we were going to go to the mission and then of course that was crowded too. So we were just like, well, let's not do that. (laughs) Um, But overall it was like a really fun experience. Um, We're going to try to do this at least once a month. Um, but I, I love Santa Barbara, man. Like, um, that, it's a town, like, I actually will be moving to eventually because of just the vibe and the tranquility and just, like, people are, you know. And it was yeah. really interesting, actually. I have, to, I have to make this point really quick. It was really interesting. So they had closed all of downtown Santa Barbara, which is where we were at. Um, and they had put, like, these signs up and, um, you know, six feet apart from people. And, like, you have to wear your mask. Like, it doesn't matter if you're going inside a place. You have to wear it. If not, you would get fined. And so I was really happy to see people wearing their masks. Um, but it was, it was kind of crazy because, you know, the so, 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 much, so much crowdage that I'm like, I'm like I, I don't feel comfortable. Like, I just personally, me, like, I don't feel comfortable, like, being around so many people. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question because here's the thing: you've had the virus, so you've got the antibodies. It doesn't matter to me. To be... it, I know, but but to me, yeah. it doesn't matter because I'm always going to be careful. Like I'm yeah, never right. not going to be careful. And so for me, it's mm-hmm. more of a it's more for my psyche yeah. to like feel like yeah. am I am I feeling safe? But you know what? I, I, it's I, like, I, it, I mean, the the weather, Tom. The weather got up to 120. So. Yeah. I don't know how people well, are just like at the beach in 120 degrees. Like I just don't know. Yeah. Well, well, you know, jump in the water. That's what you do. <laughs> That's what I'd be doing. Uh, well, yeah. No, yeah. And then, I, then I what? Like, yeah. Die of a sunburn? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why you got sunscreens for. <laughs> True. <laughs> I, mean, that's, you know, I mean, let's face it. You're looking at the guy whose idea of sunscreen is, you know, give me number seventy. <laughs> oh God! Uh, well, no, well, I can tell you. I'll tell you a story because I see, I got light skin, and I had like right now I got a little right. a, a roshia, roshia, which is it's kind of a you know a little, it's a skin condition, it's not a big deal, uh, you know. But you know, I take medication to keep it under control, so I don't look like I don't know if you ever for those people may ever remember uh, W. C. Fields used to have a really bright red nose. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, that. That's part of, and that's how bad it could be. I mean, that's you know, the worst case scenario. You look like, uh, you know, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. And I see a dermatologist, you know, every six months. You know, you know, every six months because I got light skin. So his, you know, he'll check my skin. He'll check me for skin cancer. And I remember the first time I saw the guy, it was like a couple of years ago because I got, you know, an ophthalmologist actually diagnosed my condition. You know, because oh, I, wow. I, I, I because I kept getting eye infections. Well, I thought it was eye infection. He said, no, it's not eye infection. You know, this is part of your roshi. It's just getting into your eye. You need to go see a derm. 
And the first thing Durham says to me, he said, have you ever had skin cancer? I said, no. He said, damn. You know, somebody with your skin, you should have had it by now. <laughs> I said, well, in that case, your job is keep from getting it. <laughs> right, right. Check, check on it. But, but, yeah, I use, and so basically over the years, I mean, it, you know, if I go after a significant point, I've always used, you know, the skin, you know, it's like the highest. I mean, give me the highest, and I just lather it all over me. And I've always been very cautious because I can remember, you know, when I was a, you know, you know, a teenager, you know, going to get treated for for acne, for the dermis. He said, you know, he told me, he said, if you become a sun worshiper, I'll be seeing you. At, I'll be cutting off skin off you at the age of 30. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, but, you know, they, so that would answer your question. Yeah, I, I'm. you're looking at Mr. Sunscreen number 70. If it can give 100, I'll get sunscreen number 100. But I'm right. gonna, I mean, here's the thing I find interesting because I've been one of those who stated learn to live with the virus per se okay? and i live and i we are you know we basically have had i'm going to use the word partial opening because there's nothing in the u.s is completely open uh, even the open states have had what they have rules in place for large gathering percentages of people coming in and all that and and i just think it's in uh, and I think this is part of me that said, because I was listening to your story, you know, you and I were talking about off the air. And my first thought yeah. was is that there is some aspect of normality eventually people have to get to. And I mean, at 118 degrees, I would have found a better reason. That would probably have been enough of a reason for me to stay inside uh, as opposed to going out. Well, I mean, uh, it was crazy because where we were at, it was originally 90 degrees, and then we would, we would drive yeah. up. And it started hitting 118. And, and when Steve told me, he goes, oh, my God, it's 120. And I was like, I was like, I don't believe you. He literally rolled down the window and blazing heat. And, I, and also to mention, guys, like, we have a huge fire break right now. I mean, it, one yeah. of the fires was caused by a stupid gender reveal party. And I hate gender reveal parties as it is. Like, I think they're just a complete waste of, of time. Um, like, congratulations, you, like, created a song. Hooray. Um, yeah, but you know, the fact like what 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 blows my mind is someone that is 115 or let let's say 111, you know, and you're using yeah. fireworks, fireworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what 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 exactly did you think was going to happen? <laughs> you know, yeah. I I I don't understand it, and like you know, especially with the heat right now. I mean, I got to tell you something when I when we came back, like I I crashed. Because it was so hot, yeah. you know, even we were in the car and driving with the AC on, whatever. It was just so hot that by the time I came into my apartment and I had the, we had the AC on, I crashed for five hours. Like, I took a five-hour nap because I was so yeah. tired just from, from the heat, and the heat exhausts you, you know? I mean, it was well, actually yeah. the next day, I remember, I had a friend of mine who was in Arizona, and he took a picture um, he's like right kind of like near the border of Arizona and California. And he took a picture and the, the sun, Tom, was bright red. It looked like a red ball. It was crazy. So, and those are because, yeah. that's because of the fires. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, first of all, number one, how's your utilities? Because I know it, it sounds like the mayor just recently telling people, hey, don't, you know, between such and such a time, don't do anything with your electricity. So, I mean, yeah, no, I agree got... with that. I agree with that. 
I agree with that completely. Um, like, obviously, like, oh, my God, our electric bill was so ridiculous. Our, yeah. our Okay, we live, like, in a, a 1,600-square-foot condo, and our, our, our electric bill was, like, $600 this month. Yeah. Well, so that's like, interesting thing. what yeah. the hell? Yeah. Yeah, well, so, but here's the thing, because California's got one of the highest utility rates in the country, and they got the highest gas prices. So, I mean, and I guess well, my question would be... That doesn't affect me. But, yeah. um, well, like, as far as, like, uh, if I'm in a room and I'm not using it, I obviously turn the light off. Like, I don't, like, yeah. I just did just now. I walked, I walked away from my office, and I turned the lights off. Um, for me, I like to be cold, and so this is where me and my partner disagree a lot. Um, I like to keep the house at a nice 74, 75. Um, I like to sleep with the, I'm, I'm really weird. I, I will run the AC and literally have my ceiling fan run and I'll hide under a comforter. I know it makes yeah. like no sense at all, but that's like, that's what makes me comfortable. And so that, that's yeah. what I, that's what I do. That's yeah. what I well, do. I my part, yeah. Well, so here's the point I would make there because. I'm looking, I'm, li- uh-huh. I'm watching this, I'm looking at the, you know, the thing here is, and you've got you know, brownouts all over California for what I'm reading. And Wait, by, I got you know, what? And you got brownouts. What do I have? Basically. Okay. The California brownouts where basically the electricity goes off. Okay. And, can I tell you what that is though? Can I tell you what that is? A lot of that is Yeah, spectrum. go ahead. A Pardon? lot of that has to do with spect- Spectrum Cable Company. Right. Um. And a lot of like, well, we have like, I don't even know what we have. We might have, I know, I think we do have spectrum. Crap. We have spectrum. And so uh, there have been like, I don't know, I, I belong to this like neighborhood app. So it kind of like, you know, it tells you what's going on in your area. And I want to say like four out of the five posts like per week have to do with their spectrum cable being out and therefore their electricity being put out. So a lot of it has to do with the cable companies. It's not necessarily yeah, it does, right? like, yeah. Yeah, but I guess you know, my question I'm going to throw back to you. You know, Cal- I mean, you're looking, you know, California. I mean, here's, I guess, the question I'm going to throw back, and this is the, the issue, you know, the, you know, make it because, okay, you're talking about you know, a big, high electric bill. I mean, I have a house that's bigger than yours, two okay, stories. Okay, well, what, what do you consider high? Okay, this is a good, this is such a good subject. What do you consider a yeah. high electric bill? What do you consider, well, what do you consider high? If we get to 200, my wife complains. I mean, she, to, yeah, we get to two hundred. <laughs> she like, would hate ooh. me. Yeah, uh, this, yeah, this month was like five hundred. Was like five hundred. Yeah. Now here's an yeah, interesting I mean, question it, I want to ask you because I want to sure. see if I'm normal or if I'm overspending. Per month, for just you and your wife, what is your typical uh, grocery bill per month? Oh God, you know what? I'm going to say about a hundred a month. I mean, a hundred a week, maybe. Bullshit. Oh my God! Oh Lord. Okay. Well, I'm gonna divulge some information. Our grocery bills per month are like twelve hundred dollars for two people. Well, well, what are you guys buying? <laughs> oh, I well, okay. So for me, I have to be one second. I for for me, I'm actually I'm gluten intolerant, so I have cellulite. Which yeah. is a it's like it's like a, it's like a horrible thing. Um, so I actually can't put anything that's not organic or 
Like, because a lot of people will tell you certain stuff is gluten-free, and it is not. It is, like, coat in, like, wheat, so they don't say it. So I'm, like, if I have something that's wheat, like, I'll, my whole body will start inflaming, and I'll have, like, these horrible, like, stomach pains that'll last, like, eight hours. So oh, I... Well, hold, yeah. We, well, hold on to your stomach pains. Uh, we'll be right back. This is Tom Donaldson, Coco Konski, and the Bastion News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson, Coco Konski. Uh, you can call in right now at 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. And also you can listen to the show 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. on the bachelornews.airtime.pro every day, Monday through Friday. And if you live on the Pacific Coast, or as sometimes we call it the Coco Coast, it's yes. going to be midnight and 7 a.m. every day. Uh, so you got twice. So you can listen to it twice every day. The, the best of the Donaldson Files. And listen to live Block Talk Radio every Tuesday, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time. Okay. Here's the thing about California. I mean, you, know, you know, people ask me. Uh, you know, you know, here's the thing. You know, you know, people say to me, like, okay, Iowa, you know, and I would say, you know, Iowa, you know, Iowa's Iowa. It's a, it's a, it's a great place to visit. Well, yeah, you can't, comp- you can't compare, you cannot compare I, California to Iowa. There's no, especially when it comes to house marketing, when it comes to like bills, like there's, yeah. it's, there's no way. That's unfair. You know, like, well, we, yeah. like for us, like, we actually, because we, we realized, like, our grocery bills were so high, and it was, like, I, I, I think we would spend, like, I don't know, like, 400 a week or something like that. It was stupid. Um, yeah. And so we actually ended up, like, ordering, like, these, like, these, like, home delivery meal kits from Freshly. So I'm actually starting that next week, and the reason is it's because it's, like, super gluten-free. It has, like, no soy, no nothing, and it's something I can actually eat. And, you know, compared to, like, me just cooking all the time, um, especially if I'm working, like, 10 hours a day, 10, 12 hours a day. So, yeah, for me, this is, like, what I decided to do. Um, But, yeah, I I actually – the reason I I wanted to ask you this is because I was, like, am I overspending? Because I talk to, like, so many people, and they're just, like, I spend $400 a month on groceries. I was, like, oh, my God. You know, but like I said, I I shop like at Whole Foods, so yeah, of course it's gonna be like that. But I I, again, I need I need like I have a condition where I need to eat like mostly organic and mostly like there are like no gluten whatsoever. So that's it for me. Well, well, here's the thing because you know know, people ask because here's the thing I would tell people because it's a it's fun because you know it it comes down to this. You know, people is this. I can get to any place you know, in in my area. You know, twenty you know, 
like I said, we tell people in Cedar Rapids, everything is 25 minutes from every place else. You literally, I could literally go 40 miles down to Iowa City and get there in 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Rush hour, maybe maybe 50 in rush hour. And and you look at housing prices, you know, it, you know these are things, and even energy prices, because what you're telling me is, you know, like I say, California's got, you know, if they're not the highest, they're one of the highest energy cost to individual people. And I'm looking yeah. at it, like I say, and, and I, here's the thing. We just got finished getting over a major storm. And most of, you know, we're pretty much almost back to normal utility-wise. And, and the question, you know, and the point I'm going to make here is that what you're seeing in California, you know, when you have the fires, you got you know, your spectrum, whatever else you got out there that's causing these brownouts or these, you know, electricity going down is, you know, for what you're paying. And the policy, yeah. you know, somewhere along the line, so, somebody's got to ask, I mean, I'd be asking myself, but wait a minute, if I'm paying this much electricity, you know, there are parts of California that, quite frankly, you're almost at a third world country when it comes to utilities. Where if you're having problems keeping things online, and there is this aspects of the grid that mm-hmm. you know that the, you know it is becoming outdated. And well, this is, I mean, and it this is, is, a- it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because you know we were talking, and uh, we're definitely going to move out of LA, but we're not going to live in California because I love California too much. Um, yeah. Like if you wanted to go like somewhere where you get more bang for your buck, and I. I you know, like I was thinking Ventura, which I love. I love Ventura Beach. It'd be something around there. But for now, like I am staying in LA because of school and and all all that. Um, but yeah, I mean the high cost of electricity is like kind of crazy. Um, but again, I run my AC like all day. Yeah. <laughs> like sometimes I, I would tell them I don't have the AC on, and I did. And then it's just like, oh, we have a five hundred dollar bill. Awesome. Um, but well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean uh... well, I guess my point would be is this, because, you know, you know, the question to me is always going to be, you know, when you look at different cities, different communities is, you know, what you pay for, because here's the thing again, California's got one of the highest taxes per cap. I mean, you got, you got the highest tax mm-hmm. rate anywhere. You got some of that, you got the highest gas tax, you got the and, and to be honest, I mean, the other thing. Yeah, is, that doesn't really affect me, though. That is because this yeah, affects me because we have yeah. an electric car that we plug in. Yeah. And, like, honestly, I, you know, we, we rarely spend money on gas. But, yeah, I get your point. I understand that. Um, yeah, but, so here's, and, but here's the thing. But the electric car is dependent upon because you got to plug it in, right? Yeah, every now and then. But, like, honestly, yeah, you yeah. know. It, it, it's a big money saver, though. It's a huge money saver compared to what gas used like he would spend like he would spend like four hundred dollars yeah. a month on gas, and now it's like maybe like a little over a hundred. So it's a significant, significant number yeah. that you save when you switch yeah. to electric, like for sure, for sure. I mean, you just charge it, charge yeah. it for like two hours or whatever, and um, you know you're pretty good to go. I mean, where are we gonna drive? We, we're we're quarantining at home, so. <laughs> Um, well, you know, here's the, you know, yeah, but this, this is the interesting thing about, I mean, you know, with electric cars, because people say, why, you know, this advantage, because here's the thing, the electric car is a hundred year technology. It's not a new technology. 
because no. yeah, people have to because people have to remember electric in the 1900s, electric cars and combustible engines competed with each other. And 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 one of the reasons why the one advantage a let's say my car has is I can fill up my gas tank in less than sixty seconds. You're spending two hours to redo yours, and I've always thought yeah, but your but yours is not electric, so obviously, but know. you know yeah, uh, yeah, what yeah, what I like yeah. about it is that we can get on the highway. And we don't need like you don't need a car you don't need to go in the carpool lane like you can do it by yourself and have that and and just just go and honestly yeah. if you're working like 45 minutes away from where you actually where you live 45 minutes away from where you work um you know it, it to me it's a big change yeah well I guess to me it's it's convenience because uh, you know let me ask you a question how much miles do you get per charge they well, get before you reach a you know what? I don't even. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've heard two hundred uh, miles. I mean, I could be maybe, you know, you know, you know, maybe during the next break, if Steve's around, you might want to ask him to see what he what he knows, because here's the thing: with my car, I got a Saturn. It's a two thousand two Saturn, and I literally, on an open highway, I could go five nearly five hundred miles, without a fill-up. I, mean, I could literally go five hundred miles. And when I fill it up, it takes me 60 seconds or less to fill it up. It's that aspect to me of convenience. Until an electric car can get me 500, 400 miles, and it takes me 60 seconds to charge it, <laughs> you know, I just don't see the advantage of having an electric car. And uh, Yeah, you know, that's, I, that's all, yeah, I that's do. Always I been, do. Yeah. I do for sure, just because of like how I know it saves money. I definitely know it, and you know it's really yeah. convenient. Like we could do road trips to Palm Springs and and not have to use gas. Okay, so, on the reverse I mean, side, yeah, but let me, yeah, on the reverse side, okay, you're doing you got a high electric bill. How much of that is contributed to charging your car? Is well, actually, where we live, well, where we live, it's a, there's a free charging port. So, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> So it, yeah, it right. it's worth it. So basically, you know, that you know, okay. So so basically, the place you live at, they have a charging port that you can do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, no, All the Yeah. I mean, yeah. So basically, <laughs> you're not being. Yeah, guys, crying out loud, you're getting that for free. No, what is it yeah. expensive? But I but I'll go back to my original point because this is a problem. You know, to me. Is I don't want to spend well, not two a lot hours of cities to restart. that. Yeah, no. A lot of, not a lot but of cities I don't have want to... that. Yeah, but if you're home, if you're home, you're home. What are you gonna do for if you're home for the, like eight hours? Like you just let your car charge. You know, it's yeah. not that that yeah. big of a deal. And I think if you pay, yeah. like if you go to other places and pay, I think it's like a dollar an hour. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like a dollar every hour, yeah. which is not bad. Yeah. Even that is not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on, that's this is Tom Dawson, Coco Koska here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast 
every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. And also to listen to our show every day on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. It's 3 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 12 and 12 midnight and 7 a.m. Pacific Time every day on the Bachelor News, Bachelor News Radio Network, bachelornews.airtime.pro, and also on Block Talk Radio uh, every Tuesday and Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Pacific. Call right now. 646 929 0130. 646 929 0130. All right. Matt, okay. Well, I gotta say, I mean, you know, we'll kind of move off. I guess my problem to me is this with the electric car to me is it's a hundred year technology that to me is inconvenient. You know, because when I go, yeah, on that's the road, to you. That's to you. For yeah. me, it is, it's so convenient yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, that it really is. Like you say, yeah, I guess it's convenient to me because you're living in the city, and I don't. Again, you know, you you may not well, have that, to go that far, that far. Right. But you know, when you're on on an open highway, which I do, because you know, you know, you know, because I drive to Kansas, you know, you know, I have to drive to Kansas. City, I got to drive to Chicago to meet with, you know, donors and individuals. I got to drive to, you know, Kansas City, as well. Uh, so. I mean, these are the things that, you know, and so it, it does, it makes a difference to me because, you know, the last thing I need is to have, you have to refill, you know, to recharge your car every 200 miles on the road. And I got to wait 200, you know, wait two hours to re, get it recharged. Uh, in a city, I can see what you're talking about because the city makes sense because you know, you're probably not traveling, you know, right. a couple hundred miles a day. Of course, I don't know. That way, you do have to travel quite a bit going from place to place. I mean, it's not a, it's a big, it's a big geographic area. Is it not? Yeah. It, it is. It is for sure. It is. I mean, but you know, at the same time, it's it's pretty convenient. Like I said, like we'll go to Palm Springs, and you know, I can I can easily easily do that without without using gas. Yeah. And Palm Springs is mm-hmm. like you know it's it's not like it's like three four hundred miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, well, I, yeah. in that sense, I, I, yeah, I, it makes sense to me. It's, it's, that's the reason why I guess say when it's all said and done, you know, an, inter, you know, an electric car may be suitable for city, but it's certainly at this point, technology-wise, not necessarily suitable in my view for uh, uh, long-term driving and convenience. It's, it's well, what do you consider uh, long-term uh, driving, though? Like, for you, what is a long-term driving? Well, let me put it this way. Go to Kansas, you know, you know, Cedar Rapids, Kansas City is on a business trip. It's 350 miles. Right. Uh, no, go uh, to, F that. <laughs> you know, you know, going I to Chicago. that far. Yeah. yeah. Going to Chicago, it's uh, 250 miles to Chicago. Minnesota, I've been to Minnesota, it's 250 miles. Uh, it's about 300 miles to St. Yeah. So that's 
I mean, like, listen, Tom, we drove to, we drove to Vegas, we drove to Vegas and still had enough to get back. If that tells you anything. Yeah. Yeah, that does. I mean, gas, was that your electric car? Did you do that with? Yeah. And you didn't have to recharge? No. Okay. Well, maybe the, you know, you know, maybe the, you know, the, uh, the battery. I have. We have the cam. We have the It is. We have the Camry. Uh, the, the I think it's a Toyota Camry. No, it's not a Camry. What am I thinking of? I don't know. I, I, all I know is though it's electric. And I, now, I, I like electric. That it's like, or, why? Is it's electric, electric or hybrid? It's electric. Okay. Oh, so hybrid. It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid. Okay. Well, hybrids. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, hybrids you, you use gas. You do have to have gasoline. Right. You, you can't. Yeah, you can. Yes, you can. But the um, it, it has the gas one, and then it has like the um, the one that's electric. So it's kind of both. Yeah, it's both. I mean, it runs on both sides. But right, there's the gas. Right. You when the when the electricity goes out, then the gas takes over. Right. For so sure. yeah, 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 effect, yeah. So you basically are using a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, you so are. I mean, yeah, that's a totally different picture. That's yeah. a totally different picture but, of what you're telling me because the hybrid, you got, you're still using the fossil fuels as a backup, and that, and right, certainly there's right, no right. doubt. There's no doubt but that what I'm you know, with a we, hybrid. We went to, when we went to Vegas, when we went to Vegas, we were yeah. only on the electric. I mean, and we drove like to the Grand Canyon too. That was actually really cool. Looks like no, not the Grand Canyon. My God, what am I talking about? Um, what is that? What is that? What is that thing? The the, the dam. What what. Hoover Dam, Hoover Dam. Hoover Dam, yeah. Oh, my God, that was fun. If you guys get a chance to do that, uh, do it. Unless you're afraid of heights, because I was afraid of heights, and they put us all the way to the top, and I thought I was going to die. So um, that's not fun, mm. but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. all right. We got about – okay, there's one quick thing I want to get to, because – Uh-huh. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of this over the next uh, 60 days. But here's a question I'm going to throw back to you and throw back to the audience. Is when you have a story, boss, or bad, or you look at it and you say to yourself, you know, you find yourself within 48 hours having to retreat from the story. My question I throw back is, you know, to me, the media, there's an aspect of the media of responsibility to be as accurate as possible. The Atlantic story dealing with the, you know, what Trump supposedly said about the military got debunked within 48 hours. I mean, literally 48 hours. Where you're dependent upon, quote, unquote, anonymous sources. But you have 11 to 12 people, including people who, quite frankly, don't like Trump, like John Bolton, saying never happened. And we're going to see a lot more of these kind of stories over the next 60 days. But my point I'm going to throw back is, is there, to me, every time you see a story like that, the boy that cries wolf, when you get the right story that actually is true, people are they going to dismiss it right out of hand. But this was a case to me of irresponsibility. And we're talking the Atlantic. We're not talking, we're talking the Atlantic. And I thought, you know, and I guess my point I'm going to make to this audience is this. Having myself dealt with the media and having the media lie about me or misrepresent things. You know, I, I tend to take these things a little more understanding. And I don't know what your first thought was when you first heard the story, and then, then when, let's say, 
the pushback came back, you know, you know, and and you kind of realize maybe there's nothing to this story. I mean, what was your thoughts? No, I I believe it. I mean, look, even Fox News like corroborated with it. I mean, and then you know, all of a sudden Fox News is like evil, Carnage Trump. Um, you know, why not? I mean, if you have like so many sources and there are the different people telling you the same thing, then most likely it's true. That's that's my opinion on it. No, well, here's the problem: when I have anonymous sources, supposedly anonymous sources, telling me. What one thing, and you got eleven people on the record with documentation saying it didn't happen. You know, I you know, and here's the kicker to me about that story: is this story was originally reported two years ago, and many of the same things that the eleven sources on the record plus the documentation stated it was published then, namely, a he didn't go to that one grave site because of weather. And two, he went to a separate grave site. Uh, to a separate grave site. And, and even now, Jeffrey Goldberg, the reporter, is basically saying, well, it's now backtracked for that portion of the story. And my, you know, and yeah, I mean, this, but this is, you know, this has been part of the court. I mean, to me, this was a false story, and this false story is going to have its own impact. Because I think in the case of Trump, people already have everything about Trump in the pie. It's already been cooked in. Whether you like the guy, you like the guy, you don't like the guy. It's already been cooked in. And and I and again, to me, when you can go back two years or whenever it originally happened, and you have some of the same facts that are now coming out, where okay, yeah, here was, yeah, we the reason why we didn't have a flight there because the Marines said bad weather when I put the president in risk and we can't drive out there. But we can see, but they went to a graveyard the next another graveyard to 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 pay those comments the next day. So, I don't know. I mean you know, I know what you're thinking, you're saying well it's plausible. Plausible is not the same as factual. Yeah, under, well, no, I'm, I'm not even saying pl- I'm not even saying plausible. I'm saying I'm saying definitely possible. Yeah. Well, I'm going to put it this way. Here's the thing. You know, the story about, okay, like John McCain, that, you know, that's believable only because he did it publicly for three years up to that point. So this is nothing new. But, you know, I have never seen any evidence that suggests that he would think that low of the armed services when you got, like, like every other president, hundreds of pictures of presidents, you know, including Trump, with people, whether water read. Yeah, it's called the photo op. Yeah, but photo op. But you know the thing is, when there are people in, you know, throughout, you know, whether it's Bush, Obama, where you've talked to these military people, say, yeah, we like, you know, that there was a different side. There was a personal side to these individuals when they met with us privately, uh, and I think people can mm-hmm. sting fakery. Uh, and the reason, you know, I'm going to put it this way because I've dealt with the media, and this to me is one of those stories where. When you're debunked in 48 hours, if I'm the editor of Atlantic, I'm asking myself, how the hell did this happen? That we already got a story, and it's already dead before it even gets started. You know, the well, fact I wouldn't that it call it dead. Out, I would. <laughs> I would I, definitely, I would definitely call it dead. Yeah, I would definitely call it dead. And uh, so, all right, the... 
the other aspect I'm going to get into is this. Uh, I was going to discuss Poland, but I've decided that we'll save that for another show. Because I want okay. to get into this. Because I've got to get into this story. It is oh, the, your crazy story. It is the, the crazy story. Because this one, this is one of these stories that's like, yeah, it is a typical New York story. Okay. It is a showdown between a giant rat taking on a pigeon in a ruthless, ruthless combat. I mean, uh-huh. literally, a rat just attacked the pigeon. I mean, they. And, and anybody who's ever lived in New York will know there's one thing about New York. There are pigeons everywhere. I mean, well, hello, you know, LA too. I mean, Tom, uh, the other night I was walking. I, I was like 11 o'clock at night. I usually don't walk that late. But I we were walking to like, and I noticed like a bunch of leaves. Bunch of leaves. And I kept saying to myself, wow, that's like a lot of leaves. And my dog went straight to the grass area and I'm, I'm not kidding Tom like I freaked I really freaked out there were about like I want to say like 50 cockroaches swarming the streets um, I was I was so traumatized Tom my boyfriend was there walking my dog I both ran and I left them behind if that makes yeah. any sense at all I'm a horrible girlfriend um, no like yeah I, I ran I ran I was like F this um, I mean, it, it actually, they were, they weren't like small roaches, Tom. These were like, you know, uh, like the size, the, yeah. the size of the ones you see up in Florida. I, I was not, mm. I was not happy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just one of these stories I like it because I've been to New York so many times and basically most New Yorkers view you know, pigeons and, you know, rats as pets. And, well, yeah, yeah I mean, they are. And Tom, are birds even real? I heard the conspiracy theorist from a, uh, from a QAnon person that says birds aren't even real. What do you make of that? Yeah. Are birds real, Tom? Bird. Well, last time I checked, they, I've seen quite a few. I got a few pictures of them. So oh, no, Tom. Saying, no, Tom, to... that's, Tom, that's actually the government. That's, that's actually a government robot. Did you know that? That's like the biggest yeah. QAnon conspiracy is that birds aren't real, that it's all surveillance for the government. I kind of laugh at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell My you favorite what, conspiracy. Yeah, this particular, uh, of course, it's a funny line, but there's one line that I thought was great. After this fight, some New Yorker yells to the bird, are you all right? As if the bird was going to answer. <laughs> That's just like hilarious. That's a, you know what, Tom? That's something yeah. I would do. That's something I would do. Yeah. All right. Now, here's the other story. This is crazy. German. This, yeah. So far, we've not had a Florida story. All right. We haven't. Not in a while. Yeah. Before. We have a, a German nudist chases down a boar who snaps. His laptop. Uh oh. I mean, what was in his laptop? I, mean, I have no idea. All I know is there's like a video of this German. Just imagine the scene: a German nudist running around 
going after a boar, which, by the way, are not necessarily, you know, they can become wild creatures. I can be. I mean, they're, they're crazy. People get killed they're by crazy, them. crazy, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so they basically got a whole, I mean, he got his computer back. He got his computer back, and he was given a standing ovation by the crowd that was watching him, which I'm thinking, okay. I mean, that, I mean that's got to be normal. I mean, is that something that's you know? I got to wonder if that's something normal in Berlin, you know, you know, naked people chasing after pigs. Yeah, I I don't even know. That to me yeah. is uh, it's just crazy. Yeah, totally crazy story. But I mean, so I mean, like I said, we are basically looking at the attack. We're looking at attack of wild boars, it's snatching computers, and along with the, the battle of the century, a pigeon versus the rat in New York. You know, and, and, and to me, that is a New York story. I mean, that's the kind of story you would actually read about in New York. Now, you also had a rat story, didn't you? Yeah, I I encountered some rats. Where I live, it's like there's a huge rat problem. I mean, you're in LA. They're, I'm surrounded by restaurants, so of course, like there's gonna be a rat rat issue. But um, I saw kind of a horde of rats, <laughs> and that was not fun. I I I I hate rats. I hate them. They're disgusting yeah. creatures. Um, you yeah. know the the rat the rat the rat situation is getting kind of out of control. Actually, it really is, and um, like I said, people just, they, they litter the streets, they trash the streets. So like, what do you expect? Of course, rats are going to be there. So, um, let's not litter. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's not litter. That's a good point there to see. So, well, I tell you what, we're basically running close to time. So I want to tell everybody, uh, for those people, um, uh, don't forget on block talk radio following this show. It's the Dr. Larry Show featuring Tom Donaldson as the moderator with Dr. Larry and his guest. And I know Dr. Larry will talk more about that uh, when the intro of his show begins. So, um, so how? So, by the way, you, you got any business coming up with your uh, soon-to-be stepdaughter? Uh huh. I do not. Well, yeah, I do. I mean, she comes over every Sunday, which is really fun. Um, and you know. Dealing with schoolwork, <laughs> you know, um, and I, uh, I enjoyed the time I spent with her. So, uh, fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tom Donaldson, Coco Konsky here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're going to say goodnight. We'll be next Tuesday. I'll be back here at 6 p.m. with a special show not yet identified. Wednesday, next Wednesday, Coco and I will be back on the air. And Yep. And we want to say, we're going to say good night. Good night. Have a wonderful week and a wonderful Wednesday.
Trumpet. You know it's the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Dr. Larry Fidoa, your host for the hour. And tonight we're going to be talking about workers' rights in the 21st century in honor of uh, Labor Day, uh, which is now a couple days ago. But we're still uh, asking specifically, is there a place for labor at the table of a conscious capitalist company? My first experience with the union came when I represented the newsroom's intention to hold a vote for a union to the publisher of a national weekly newspaper. I had a summer job there after my first year as a high school teacher. Later, as a training developer, I wrote, produced, and oversaw one of the largest industrial training programs in history for the Railway Labor Executives Association, which is a council of all the major rail union presidents. I also executed major projects for the Federal Railroad Administration, Amtrak, Conrail, and others. Still later, I worked very closely with the National Education Association, the Professional Teachers Union, in a major uh, joint venture, uh, a national research project, and addresses to two national conventions. The reason I mention all this background is to establish my position as an ardent supporter of the labor movement. My comments come from a firm commitment to the need for workers to take their place at any table which determines their fate. The purpose of this essay is to explore a possible alliance between unions and conscious capitalist companies. The first factor in this dialogue would be the fact that conscious capitalism promotes the most expansive view of workers' rights ever to be advocated by corporate management in the history of capitalism. At last, workers are accorded the respect due to major shareholders or stakeholders in an organization, whether a corporate giant or an entrepreneurial startup. Almost always, this means sharing in the profits of the company, if not outright stock ownership. This view of business flows from an idealistic definition of the enterprise, which includes, among other things, the function of profits as a necessary means to a greater good. The greater good is the mission of the firm as providing a community service through the sale of its goods and services. Conscious capitalism challenges everyone in the organization to contribute to the fulfillment of this mission and provides the resources to do so. But, Conscious capitalists also tend to be anti-union. Most believe, with the former Whole Foods CEO John Mackey, that unions introduce an adversarial relationship between management and labor, which detracts from the collegial environment necessary for the conscious capitalist company to be successful. True to that description, the unions argue that underneath the ship's chief's clothing, Conscious capitalists are really hiding their power to dictate and enforce their own definition of workers' rights. The the workers ultimately have to accept that definition or find another job. With every company defining workers' rights in its own way, no standards will be set or recognized. 
This is just the same old thirst for power presented in modern dress. So what's the answer? Is there a place for unions in a conscious capitalist company or not? The first union, the first element of the answer is, if the employees want a union, there is a place for a union. During a transitional period such as the current one, there will be continue there will continue to be employers who do not accept the new ways. The old paradigm of management versus labor will be in place and needs to be followed. Over time, however, more and more companies will join the new movement, particularly since there is much evidence accumulating that dictates conscious companies are substantially more successful financially. In order to maintain its relevance, therefore, labor will have to adapt. The first step in that direction is to find a new answer to the question of a union's role in a worker-friendly enterprise. So here are some ideas. First, many companies will be trying to transition to the new style. Unions could help them succeed. But, you say, why not hire a consultant or a new senior staff to guide the company in the new direction? These may be useful measures, but no one outside the organization has the same motivation and investment in success as the people working there right now. However, they are generally as inexperienced as the owners, so involvement of a knowledgeable and sympathetic third party could be welcome on both sides. However, the union must be truly invested in a cooperative approach in order to be credible. To achieve this posture, unions should be reaching out to the small but growing body of conscious capitalist experts. Honest discussions about sensitive issues will profit both sides. Another role for unions in the new world of work we face is that of advocating national and international standards of what constitutes workers' rights in this new century. As movements like Conscious Capitalism illustrate, 40-hour work weeks, paid vacations, pensions, and health care are not always enough to keep the economy going in the right direction. Today's workers want to be part of the company in new ways, ranging from profit-sharing to shareholders to open communication with the governing bodies, including full financial disclosure, to a cooperative culture and many other new practices. Workers want to be treated as persons, not robots. This transitional period is reminiscent of the early days of TQM, Total Quality Management, which can be seen as an earlier step in the same direction. The eagerness of workers to become involved in contributing their ideas and expertise to product development and manufacturing was often almost was almost tangible. It revealed to many of us just how much talent had lain dormant in our workforce. The contention here is, of course, that unions as well as management must embrace the new style of company culture as a means to solving our wealth gap between the rich and the middle class. The reduction of traffic uh, taxes and reductions of the Trump era 
are doing much to enhance the wages of the lowest income workers. But from a macro view, the real challenge is to enrich the middle class, which is responsible for much of the consumer economy on which our national wealth ultimately depends. The leftists want the government to use the tax system as an instrument for redistributing America's wealth from the very rich to everybody else, legal or illegal, and that would weaken the individual's motivation to work hard on which free market capitalism has been built and which has created all this wealth. Conscious capitalism is an answer to the question, how do we solve the wealth gap without turning to socialism? Union support with an updated agenda will help America achieve the right outcomes. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. John Zafon presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge, and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening while the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century, and nothing is off limits or taboo. Donald Zafon on the Bachelor News Radio Network network welcome back to the dr larry show which is also the home of the uh, bachelor news radio show with your host la bachelor this this show discusses issues of race politics policing injustice inequality religion and sports that affect black brown and poor people negatively Listen live to every Monday and Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash Bachelor and rebroadcast every day at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time at uh, thebachelornews.airtime.pro. If you're interested in having your own show or advertising, email us at Bachelor. Four zero at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And as long as we're talking about that, uh, the uh, people that are uh, available to, uh, uh, that are listening to the show uh, or that want to listen to the show uh, should call 646-929-0130, which is actually the easiest way to listen and talk to Larry, uh, Dr. Larry and the guests on the air. Uh, now, there's also a bo- podcast of each week's show is rebroadcast daily at 1 a.m. and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on uh, the uh, bachelornews.airtime.pro. And for more writings, poems, interviews, and guest editorials, see my website, drlarryonline.com. So tonight... We have uh, uh, two uh, guests, uh, which uh, 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 consist of uh, uh, talk show president uh, George Landreth and uh, well-known, uh, well-known to uh, to uh, <clears throat> the uh, our, our our audience, uh, Tom Donaldson. 
uh, who is my colleague from uh, uh, another program. And uh, welcome, gentlemen. I'd like to start with uh, asking you each to uh, give a little bit of uh, information to our audience about uh, what you're doing and, uh, and, uh, and what you're up to. George, would you like to start? Sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm the uh, president of Frontiers of Freedom, Frontiers of Freedom Institute. It was founded by Malcolm Wallop. Uh, he was a, a three-term senator from Wyoming, uh, you know, both a friend and an ally of Ronald Reagan's. Uh, you know, our mission is essentially to promote freedom and opportunity whenever and wherever we can. Um, we are dedicated to uh, principles of individual liberty, limited government, peace through strength, free enterprise, and the values that we see embodied in things like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. So, and you, we, of course, believe that freedom is worth preserving and renewing and defending. And uh, because the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, that's an ongoing process. You can never really say, oh, we got freedom, that's good, now we're done, we'll go on to the next thing. It's, you always have to be vigilant. So um, that's where we come from and that's what we do. Good. And Tom? Uh, how about you telling us just a little bit of your other background besides uh, the radio? Thank you. I am basically the chairman of America's PAC, and America's PAC I yell with is a, uh, you know, Mer- I'm the chairman of America's PAC, I am a, which is a super PAC which uh, fights for freedom, justice, and the American way. Also, I am a research associate and project director of America's Majority Foundation, and which basically talks about the research into the free market and into social issues as well. Uh, and I'm also the author of eight books, including The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism. Well, that ought to impress everybody. It impresses me, gentlemen. And so uh, what did you think of my uh, my opening statement? Uh, start with you, George. Um, I like that. I think um, I, I think in particular it's important to look at ways to spread opportunity, and um, that, that doesn't involve empowering government. Because my experience is that when government's super super powerful, then it ends up making decisions based that benefit it and its sponsors, so to speak. So you know we can all find instances where you look at the marketplace and say, well, that doesn't really seem just. Why are we paying this guy this and somebody as important as a firefighter is barely getting by or something? And I understand that, but if you look at societies that are uh, socialist and the government has the power to make different kinds of choices, they have their own set of problems. And so, um, at least in our system, we all kind of collectively, like if we think NFL quarterbacks are paid too much, that's all of our own fault because we all watch we all buy merchandise we could we could make them worth less if we watched less you know so my point is i think there's a certain collective morality to the marketplace and i liked your focus on trying to find ways within that way that doesn't empower government because i think the illusory uh promises would be oh yeah give the government the power and they'll make sure everything's fair and my experience is look in uh, you know places where they have governments powerful enough to do that they don't do that and so, um, and then, you know, but so I, I think it makes a lot of sense for capitalism to look at new mechanisms and ways to make sure that the promise of opportunity is to given to everyone. And, uh, you know, that, that's, you, you'll see that start with rising wages. You'll then see that with, uh, you know, rising, 
uh, wealth, not just better pay, but all of a sudden they'll be able to save and buy homes and perhaps, uh, you know, own businesses and things like that. And they may not be wealthy in the way that uh, Elon Musk or, uh, you know, or, or uh, Mr. Uh, Gates are wealthy. I mean, uh, that's fine, but, but wealth in a, in a sense that they can provide for themselves, their families, and they're not trying to figure out where their next meal is coming from. And they're, you know, able to, uh, take care of uh, life and live the American dream, at least that much wealth, if not more. But I, I, I feel like um, it's one of the things I love about America. I look at my uh, my uh, two grandfathers in my life. They grew up in essentially tr- poverty. But when they, uh, at the end of their life, they had accumulated and, and become successful. And it wasn't because of privilege. It was they worked hard and the system rewarded them. And um, and I'd like to see a system that tells Americans in this time and space, work hard and you will be rewarded and you will have something, uh, you know, sizable at the end of a lifetime worth of work. I, that's important to me. That's part of what America is about as I see it. Tom, your comments? Uh, I get, you know, here's the thing. We, you know, we've had always these kinds of discussions in the past and where to go. And I think the one aspect is that, the beauty of free markets is flexibility. It adapts to the time, adapts to where we need to be, because people are free to make decisions about their life. And I, and I do think that the one aspect that comes into play here that we need to be looking at is two things. Well, is that over this since 2000, we've seen a sea change within America that you know, where it's not just about you know, inequality per se, but whether or not wealth is even being created for those at the bottom and moving up the economic ladder. Can you still do that? And you also have the rise of a political party in the case of the Democrats that have basically become a socialist party. They may not always say that, you know, but the reality is that Alexander Cortez is more of the Democratic Party than Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And so you have essentially a socialist party promoting socialist ideas, and we're looking at a period in time in which we're staring at the abyss and wondering where do we go, and certainly market people, you know, and certainly ideas like conscious capitalism, which in my view is in many ways a readaption of good ideas of the past put back into the 21st century. Well, the way I came to to this conscious capitalism thing is I, I came to it starting with economics. Namely, you've got you've got 68 percent of the G, American GDP is consumer consumer uh, buying, retail buying for the most part, and the key to that success has been that we had a middle class that's has enough money to be able to continue that. So then you look at the at the graph that talks about the uh, distribution of wealth in the United States from 1971 when we went off the gold standard to uh, today. There's been approximately 500 percent. It's almost 600 uh, percent inflation, which is in effect maintained the uh, wealth of the middle class at the same level, uh, not the wealth, but the income of the uh, middle class at the same level as it was in 1971. 
So where's all the extra money going? It's going to the 1% who now own 80% of all the assets in the United States. Well, we can't have that continue because if we do, we're going to be back in feudalism. We're going to be back with a few people, everybody else working for a very few people in the United States who have the capital to uh, to own and, and run uh, the uh, the entire economy. So then I started looking for, well, what's the answer? The answer, it seemed to me, was we've got to somehow learn how to transfer the wealth that the 1% has back to the uh, 68% uh, or the approximately 60% of the uh, population that, in fact, will then have 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 the the uh, advantage of having regained about uh, 35% of, of 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 the assets of uh, of the uh, of the of the economy. So that's how I started looking, and I said, well, there's only two ways to do that. One is you're going to do it through the socialists who want the government to to take in that that extra 30 percent in taxes and then let them redistribute it and i think that's a terrible idea because that's the beginning of that's the beginning of uh, fascism and then the other idea is well then how do we get uh, a government free uh, way to to make this happen and the, the answer i came to was it must be uh, some form of uh, profit sharing. So then I started looking around. I found this conscientious capitalism, which is way ahead of me. I, I mean, they've been they've been talking about this stuff now for about 10 years. They've got a hundred. They've got 160,000 member uh, companies, and they already represent over three million uh, employees, workers. So I I started looking into that, and that's really how I came to to the came to the position that I uh, that I enunciated tonight. So my my question then is, well, we've got we need to have we we need to have this sharing of wealth that needs to resharing should I say of uh, assets, uh, and how is that going to happen, or why hasn't it happened so far, and and, and who's responsible? Who's been fighting for the middle class to have their share of this of this largely uh, this pie that's been that's been expanding enormously because of digitization? And 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 it's it's the unions. The unions are supposed to be looking out for the for these guys. And what have the unions been doing ever since they? I think in 1960 they won all the battles that they've been fighting since the 19 well, 1870s, really. And I mean, they got all of the lifestyle benefits, the, the uh, you know, the insurance uh, coverage, the uh, pension coverage, the, um, the uh, various uh, types of uh, the shorter work week and, and all that sort of thing. And, and, and then instead of continuing their vigilance and trying to keep worrying about what, what's going to be the next threat, they decided to put all this extra money they had into uh, buying the, the Democrat Party, and they got all involved in politics. And since the, since then, the last 40 years, we've been involved almost. It's really 50 years that we've been involved. They've been involved and in almost exclusively in politics. Well, 
that didn't solve this problem. This problem happened right under their noses, and they weren't looking at it. So I'm saying you got to get, but they still have a place in this economy because they do represent a, a uh, an exercise of the Constitution which says that everybody's created equal, and by God, we got to enforce that somehow. So that's that's kind of my not so brief uh, explanation of where I am on it, and we're going to ask you guys to uh, talk about that as we take a break here. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So you're listening. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of the Locker Talk with Barry Barnes. And uh, if you listen to Barry's show, you find out where you can hear about NFL stars of tomorrow today. Listen to Barry every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash Bachelor and podcast every day at 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time with back-to-back episodes at the Bachelor News, uh, dot airtime dot pro, And if you're interested in your own show or advertising, email us at the LABachelor40 at gmail.com and listen and stay informed. So, gentlemen, uh, I have kind of monopolized some of the, some of the uh, time here for the last uh, few minutes. Uh, I want to give you guys a chance to respond. And uh, Tom, do you want to start? Yeah. Well, uh, let me uh, let me put. I, I think what we need to look at because I I don't necessarily see everything you've seen in the the same light, but I kind of look at it as a three part story over the past forty some fifty years. If you look at nineteen seventy one through let's say nineteen eighty two eighty three, you had you were coming out of one recession. You had the increased regulations, increased the administrative states took off. Um, you had stagflation, and you had essentially three recessions in that period of time, including two, which the unemployment rate went above 9%. But if you look at 1983 to 2000, I think you see a totally different picture where the incomes went up. You had a more free market approach. You had marginal tax rates go down, and you had a you know, a restriction of regulation and an restriction of least trying to keep spending in line. And you saw, you know, and you had technology, uh, new technology taken right off. And in that particular case, you had, in fact, an average of three plus percent per year per growth, which basically raised the uh, income for everybody going up. I think to me where the issue comes in, it starts in 2000, 2001, where we basically have had our grand experiment. Because even during the Bush years, you had more, in many ways, more as much Keynesian economics as you did, you know, you know supply side of free market. And, we, and we've only had two years in which we've had 3% growth since 2001. 
And we've had two major recessions, you know, two, 10 years apart. But the real question to me, and this is where I'm going to make a point to you, Larry, and to you, George, is this. First of all, number one, to me, it's not about inequality per se as much about whether or not the people in the middle class can move up the economic ladder. And if you look historically speaking since they, you know, like George, like the Pew Research Group, you know, they made the point that more people are actually moving up to the upper class as opposed to going down. The only question that, that you do see, and think of it this way, the stock market has increased by 29-fold. And that's part of the problems you're seeing with, you know, access and control of wealth that you're talking about, Larry, is that many wealthy people are much more invested, let's say, in raw dollar terms into the stock market. And so their income went dramatically increased because of it. I mean, you're looking at a 28-fold increase. But on the reverse side of that, between in the 1980s through the 1990s into 2007, you also had a creation of that investor class where people started to invest themselves. And you saw overall wealth of people going up as well, maybe not as fast as those at the top. My concern would be since 2007, you're seeing something that should be disturbing, namely wealth creation going downwards. You know, the number of people holding stocks and investments have declined, you know, significantly. So, uh, so you've got that going. You've got, let's say, the hollowing out of manufacturing with the advent of China marketing coming in. And you, where, let's say, what you, the blue-collar workers, that, let's say, the Utah, you know, that have seen their income drop because many of the companies they work for no longer exist. You know, these are the people throughout the much of the Midwest and the South. And then you finally... And and these are the things to me to concern because you saw something that we have not seen before, namely Americans think asking the question, is my life going to be better than my parents' life? And I think that is the question we need to ask. And I think that the conscious capitalist ideas that you talk about of bringing the workers and giving them a stake in the pot in a stake. You know, whether, you know, through stocks, whether through, you know, ownership of what they do within their company is a necessity that is going to be, you know, a necessity because people need to be once again invested in the system. And if they're not, if they don't feel invested in the system, they'll move elsewhere. George? Um yeah, I mean, I see it a lot like that. Um, my sense of uh, things are I, I don't see it so much as redistribution uh, of wealth as I do perhaps making sure that we are an opportunity society. Um, you know, one thing I think that is uh, that Tom pointed out that's important is when you have vibrant economic growth, and we saw this, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit, you see wages at the lowest ends and for people who have historically been the least likely to participate in economic uh, rising as the biggest beneficiaries. And if that continues for an extended period of time, I think the market would demand some of these changes because wages go up because employers look around and realize they're not able to fill the positions they have and they need good, good employees. So they, they pay more and then they pay more. 
And if we could have an extended period of real economic growth, I think you'll see uh, wage packages not just become a little higher wage, but you might see, for example, profit sharing thrown in because you want to attract the best talent and keep the best talent. So I would argue that um, one of the things government needs to do is stop putting its proverbial you know, foot on the throat of, of, of progress, economically speaking, and allow the economy to grow. Uh, because the biggest beneficiaries of that growth, sure, will there be some Bill Gates out there will be rich? Of course. But it will be the, if you will, the, the, um, just the regular Americans. Uh, you know, you, we saw this after World War II. People like the two grandfathers on my side, you know, uh, in my family that uh, grew up uh, in abject poverty. And, uh, but because they worked hard and it was an opportunity society, they became relatively wealthy, not Bill Gates wealthy, but relatively wealthy. And um, they changed the, uh, you know, the stars, as it were, for their children. All of a sudden now their ch- they didn't ever went to college. They were able to make sure their children could go to college. They, you know, they owned a home instead of uh, you know, renting a flat somewhere. You know, all these different things changed in their family because of the opportunity society existed. And so, and, and they, you know, they didn't necessarily have, uh, you know, what you might call traditionally super high-paying jobs, but it was an opportunity society. So I, I very much want to see us get that way. It's the kind of place I want my children to grow up and my grandchildren to grow up in. I don't want them to have to have, um, you know, a, a fancy-pants degree from Harvard to make it. I, I want them to have a strong work ethic. I want them to have a, a sense of obligation to their family and their community, and I want that to be what it takes to be successful. And I, of course, want them as much education as, uh, as, as needed. But my point is we ought not create a world in which opportunity exists only for a few. I'd like to see every American have the opportunity to be successful. And um, if we create that kind of society, um, we'll have a lot less strife, we'll have a lot less difficulty, and we will see um, – a lot of the social pathologies that we see going on and, and have developed in the last 50 years start to subside. So to me, there's many, many benefits to the idea of putting employers in a position of having to compete for a talent pool, whereas, quite frankly, in a, in a slow economic growth society, they don't have to. You know, when, when the economy is growing at an anemic one, two percentage points, Everyone just holds on to the job they got, and they just feel darn lucky to have it. And so what motivation does an employer have to, you know, open up his pocketbook and share some of the profits with them? Um, so I, and, and, of course, when there's more profits, then there's more to share, too. So the reality is the owner of the company will also get far wealthier, but so will his employees. So to me, that's what I mean when I say an opportunity society, and I like the idea that you're talking about, and I think it's important that we – um, work to build that kind of society. Well, I guess I guess my reaction is that um, you're talking about a uh, kind of a micro view, uh, whereas uh, I've been my in my analysis, I've been more taking a macro view, and the and to me the reason for for justification for that is that any of the things you're talking about, both of you, um, require 
that we have a uh, system that encourages what we what what we want. And George, you're talking about the uh, advantage of your grandfathers, but you have to look at at the at the way that the world was that uh, they were when they were in their peak and they were thriving in the 1960s and 70s, for the most part, they were living off of the um, advantages that had been gained by their uh, fathers, grandfathers, uh, in in the uh, legislation of the 1960s, which essentially um, required that all uh, people that wanted to join a union uh, could and they, they, uh, the laws then were enabled to, enabled people to do that, and as a result, uh, we had America as kind of the uh, victor of World War II. They were, we were on top of the world. Nobody could compete with us in virtually anything, and these guys uh, lived a very rather prosperous lives uh, through through their whole uh, you know their whole work working life and provided for us as their children uh, a, a very a brighter, much brighter futures. And the point that I'm making is that that is not happening anymore. You're not getting, factory, when the factories go overseas and they disappear and the factory workers don't have any more jobs because there aren't any industries that they can uh, that they can have that kind of lifestyle in, uh, working and this this whole thing dissip- is dissipated pretty much in the last. Uh, we're, we've really noticed it the more more in the uh, in the post uh, t- uh, 9/11 era, as, as Tom pointed out. Um, and 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 I think the same is also true, Tom, in what what you're saying. Um, it's not so much that anybody disagrees with the uh, ups and downs of the economy, but you have to look. Also, at why did that happen? And one of the reasons that happened is, is because uh, there are really two reasons. One is that we had this uh, tremendous inflation, which we still are we're looking looking squarely in the eyes still with the uh, particularly with the new national debt that's coming about because of uh, COVID. And then secondly, it was all the the, the digital um, revolution, which once the internet got got underway, anybody that that could read um, English, particularly in the beginning, anyway, anybody that could read English uh, could actually uh, do compete with a lot of American workers, and a lot of the people in India and Asia and and the Philippines decided uh, to try that, and when the American uh, the American capitalists, who were <clears throat> going by the by the Friedman era, that uh, said that uh, the purpose of of uh, business is to make uh, profits, they saw a tremendous uh, a tremendous de- uh, de- or opportunity in reducing uh, labor costs uh, significantly. I mean, quanti- qualitatively as well as quantitatively. And they took it, and therefore there's when all our manufacturing left. So we're going to take a break here. The 
and come back and uh, listen to the next uh, <laughs> the next episode. Um, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, we're talking to George Landreth and Tom Donaldson. And, um, Tom, I think it's your turn to uh, give your assessment of what we've been talking about. Yeah, let me me put it. I mean, here's the thing. What concerns me is that, you know, let me throw – I mean, I'm going to kind of go a little bit outside because I, I too, look at the micro side of the equation like you're trying to do. Uh, And – there are three. There are certain things that bother me, and it's more of a cultural side as well, because culture does matter in these areas. You know, one of the things that you know, I, when we survey people, we'll ask the question: You know, do you believe hard work, uh, delay gratification, uh, wait till you have, you know, get married to have children? You know, hard. You know, don't show up to work drunk or stoned. You know, these basic values that people would take with them, you know, there's enough Americans who no longer buy into what I call the proven principles of success. you got whole groups of people who are now telling Americans that the proven principles no longer work or applicable. And, and in a society where you're tearing down the statues of George Washington, you're looking at a society that's lost faith and whether or not there is an American dream left. Uh, and, well, why is that? It, you you know, know, it's, I, I, it's because I, it's not working. I, I, and let me put this. It, it's not working. Here's a, I'll give you an example. We, we get into a conversation on the previous show, and I'm being, you know, and my co-host is telling me how much she's paying in utilities, how much she's paying, you know, grocery, how much she pays in rent. And, I mean, and, uh, and, you look at California, which is a progressive playground. It's got the biggest inequality out there. Among, and part of the reasons is that you have an oligarchy at the top. You have people being squeezed because of government and bureaucratic policies that increase the little things like gas, the price of gasoline, the price of utilities, the price of housing. And, and people are being squeezed out. In these areas, and if you're asking me the question, I think part of it is is that you know the part of it is that there is you know that particular aspect where you have a political class that's centralized power, whether from Sacramento, whether from uh, or Washington D.C. nationally, you know we know better than you. And in the process, the entrepreneurship. Let me let me take it even a step further, and George, you. You know, you may be aware of some of these statistics. The number of people starting their own businesses, in particular among, let's say, whites, have declined. If it wasn't for Hispanics, we would have a total decline in the number of people starting new businesses. 
I mean, so the difficulty of just even starting a new business has become onerous. And I think this is part of the aspect that comes into play, namely we're looking at the wrong places for solutions. And I think this is where your capital, your, I say your aspects of conscious capitalism is as a returning to the fact that in the end, people left to their own devices or people at least working with a common interest are better at producing solutions to the problems than a faraway bureaucrat. Well, I certainly buy that. Yeah. Uh, George, where are you? Where are you on this? Well, I I actually agree with. Um, I I think that, that was exactly the right um, point. There is just um, to be honest, I probably couldn't say any better than that. It's just. But the bottom line, I guess, is, you know, Tom outlined what I would call this opportunity principle. Part of, um, in both cases, my grandparents, they started businesses of their own. And while they never became Bill Gates, they became successful business people in their own right. And they were able to hire other people and provide opportunity for them. And, um, and at the same time, you know, change their stars and, and where their trajectory had been because opportunity was readily attainable. And what I'm worried about today is, is that, uh, and I can say this as somebody who, you know, has run small of small business uh, and an inordinate amount of time expertise is taken up in just trying to satisfy all these like, bookkeeping, goofy little legal rules the government creates when you're a corporation, you can afford to hire a, a legal department and just say, deal with this. But when you're an entrepreneur trying to start a business out of your home, every hour you spend fulfilling government's demands of, for paperwork is an hour you're not spending making your business successful. And, uh, and so, so many businesses fail. And so I think part of the reason why Tom's and Tom's stats were right about, uh, you know, businesses being started is because people just gotten the sense of, you know what, it's not much sense starting a business because the government's just going to squash you anyhow. They're going to make it difficult as all get out. The upside's not worth it compared to what the downside is. And I think um, that's the government's fault. They should not do that. And yet every single time, you know, Hillary famously said, you know, acted like, uh, you know, someone said, uh, you know, restaurants can't afford your plan. And her response was, I'm not responsible for every undercapitalized business. In other words, her view is if you can't afford the burdens I'm going to place on you, you're undercapitalized. You don't deserve to survive. And it's just like, really, that's an interesting perspective. Just, uh, and I think that too many people in government have that view. It's just you, you, we, will, we will harness you with, with a tremendous burden, and if you can't carry it, well, too bad. And it, it's just that's not an opportunity society. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm big on the idea that people ought to be able to change their stars. That's kind of, what, to me, part of quintessentially what America is about. It's not just free speech. It's not just freedom of, of religion. It, those things for sure are part of it. But part of it was you could come to America, and it didn't matter who your father was or your mother was. You could make your own way. And uh, we started to lose that in the, la- in the most recent generations. And, 
Why when government grows, freedom shrinks. Why, why do you think we've been we've lost it? Well, I think a lot of it is because government has uh, regulates so heavily now. Uh, you can't even start a business out of your home unless you get the local government's permission to do so. In many cases, in some cases, it's actually not even legal to operate a business out of your home. And what I, I don't I don't mean run a store out of your house. I mean, you know, like let's say you start a business and so you have your home office in the basement and that's where you take the calls. And you may have a single person there who answers the phone and sends out the, the uh, contractors, the repairmen, depending on what your business is. And technically speaking, if the government becomes aware of that, they'll shut you down because they don't want you to do that. And it's just kind of like, really? That's what we're doing now? Meanwhile, we'll let people burn cities down. That's okay. But we will virulently shut down businesses that are, uh, you know, and I just, it's just, and then you have the tax burdens, you have the regulatory burdens, you have all of this, and you have some guy who's just saying, I just wanted to start a plumbing company. I didn't want to work for the government, too. And, uh, and that's the way it's worked out. And, and I just, I think it's a real problem. And we have to figure out, do we want to continue to drive jobs overseas and drive opportunity overseas and tell people, don't start your own business because we're going to make it so it doesn't pay. We're going to make it so you lose your shirt. We're going to make it so you hate what you do because you think you work for yourself, but you will soon find out you don't. You work for the government. Then, you know, what kind of society is that? It shouldn't surprise us we get these results. And uh, so to me, that's the big issue is we've got to turn all that around, and then you will find that Americans will begin to experience what at least I've been referring to as the American dream, which isn't necessarily being Bill Gates. But it is building something that you're proud of and that you, uh, you provide for your family and you change the trajectory of your you know, financial pedigree chart. Well, I guess, I guess my, my reaction to your first uh, example about the, your grandfathers going in and becoming entrepreneurs was you know, they couldn't have been successful unless the, uh, the customers that they, that they – uh, Attracted had the money to pay for what they were what they were offering, and they had enough money to pay the 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 price that was required for them to succeed, and that was a, uh, an effect of the uh, economy, the economic environment that that we had at the time, which was American superiority and manufacturing and everything else, and uh, also. Uh, and there really were no serious competitors in the world at the time. Uh, and that really started to come about when Japan emerged in the 1980s and so on. Uh, and, and my point is that if, if the people that don't have, don't, can't start the, the businesses today can't do it because the people that they would have to charge for the uh, the services that they're offering, uh, even though those are artificially inflated by government requirements, uh, they still the people that that they would use that would be their customers basically can't afford to pay those prices, and and that's because they don't have the assets to to uh, do it, and that is exactly the problem that I'm trying to address by saying that we've got to get uh, some kind of way of transferring 
the excess uh, or the, what I consider excess uh, asset values uh, from the 1% of the population that now holds 80% of those assets to uh, a much more equitable distribution. Because if you don't do that, then all the things you're talking about in your opportunity society are not going to happen because there is not sufficient capital in the, in the proper places. The proper places in the middle class, the people that make up 50 to 60 percent of all the, uh, not only the families, but the spending in our economy, and they just don't have the money. And that is the underlying problem that we have to solve. And I'm saying that let's, there's only two ways to solve it. You're either, you're, if you don't solve it, you're going to continue down the path. Why do you think that the Democrat Party that that Tom was talking about earlier in the in the program has has been able to attract all these people in in uh, in in such a short period of time? I mean, they're, 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 you say it's it's the siren call of of left uh, the, the idealistic leftism, but but that that's been going on at least since the Roosevelt administration. I mean. Roosevelt had in his in his uh, inner circle people that had gone to the Soviet Union for for their honeymoons and for their vacations and came back as ardent admirers of the new system, even though they, they you know the Soviet they, I guess they probably didn't know that that the Soviets had their gulags and that that uh, that was the whole thing was happening, uh, but that that's been going on. I mean, George Wallace was a uh, vice president under uh, uh, Roosevelt in his second term, uh, you know. So that's been going on for for a uh, hundred years. Why didn't the American people accept it to begin with? And the it, it, the reason that they didn't was because they had the, the money was flowing freely or increasingly freely, and of course the the, the war was a big interruption for all that, but. Nevertheless, after the war, um, America went through, uh, through after that initial uh, re, uh, recession that they had in 1946 to 48. Uh, then from then on, essentially for the next 20 years, uh, there really wasn't any severe setback, and uh, and the money was flowing freely, and people were getting their share. The the asset value of the uh, middle class at that point uh, began to escalate enormously, and that accounts for the, all that prosperity and all that so on. The, the confidence that we got in the 1960s to uh, 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 prove all of these uh, uh, what these lifestyle uh, benefits that the uh, uh, that that the um, uh, Unions have been arguing for and fighting for for the last uh, 40 years, or the last 100 years, really. So anyway, all of that, all of that is underlying. And of course, even though Roosevelt did devalue the dollar uh, with his 35 uh, cent per o- 35 dollar per ounce uh, gold uh, declaration in 1933, we still had the gold standard. Of uh, that underlay, underlined our our, uh, our 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 currency. Well, when Nixon decided uh, to get off of that and go to his basket full of uh, uh, his basket full of uh, 
uh, currencies as the uh, standard, uh, that's when the, the real defla- inflation really began. And so things, and we had we hit that that bump that uh, Tom talked about in in the late, really with the uh, Arab uh, boycott of uh, of of power, gasoline or uh, oil, I guess. Uh, all of that that was all tied together, and under uh, under the underlying uh, factor was was because of the, or the underlying ev- e- uh, result was. Of this transfer, the slow transfer of assets to the to the very rich, and then along comes digitization, and all of a sudden, the American labor market gets expanded to the whole world, and that was the that was a kiss of death. So all of the things you're talking about that are required for the opportunity of society are ultimately dependent upon the middle class having enough money to make it happen. And that, I, I believe, is the fundamental underlying problem. That, that That's also the reason why socialism is getting so popular in the United States, because we have a whole generation of people for whom they've seen uh, the traditional system that, that Tom's talking about and you're talking about didn't work. They, they came out of college. They couldn't get a job. They uh, found out that everything was... Uh, uh, essentially closed to people that didn't have a lot of money and so on. And they saw their parents uh, getting uh, getting uh, disenfranchised because they couldn't uh, find a job or taking menial jobs to make uh, limits. The divorce rates went up. People, women, that in the same time, the, the workforce expanded by almost double when women began to en- enter, uh, enter the workforce in numbers in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, so that's all. It's all connected. The underlying factor is that if we had more understanding of and appreciation of uh, the, the value of labor, that we could get the distribution of wealth back into some kind of balance. All of these things would start to be resolved. So, gentlemen, that is my that is my my final. Uh, uh, conclusion from from this conversation. We still have about about a minute left for uh, each person here, and so I'm just going to ask you for uh, your quick summary. George, would you give me a give me a, a quick uh, summary of what you uh, come off? Come sure. Off I, I think I would just with? add that. Absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned the idea that people have to have money to frequent the businesses, for example, of my, my, my grandparents. I agree with that, but in an opportunity society, everyone will have more money because wages are rising, as we saw them in the last few years, start to rise for the first time in a long time. Um, so to me, I do believe opportunity is the best approach because otherwise I think what we end up with is a system where the government decides how much wealth someone can keep and how much they must distribute to others. And that's when I kind of go, wait a minute, the government making these decisions for us is not going to be pretty. Um, and, but, but if we have a system where we have incentives, perhaps, maybe we, uh, we certainly create um, a more favorable uh, climate so that people first have their wages go up, and then over time, these other things start to happen. We've spent you know, 50 years getting here, so it might take us a few years to get back out. 
Um, but I think we can do it. But I'm just, I just want to make sure we don't end up with a government-run well, mandate. Uh, we're going to have to cut this short. Uh, we're, our time is up. And thank you guys both for uh, contributing a great, uh, a great conversation. This is the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network saying good night and God bless America. <laughs>